Hey, and welcome on board. I'm Stu. This is the Barefoot Podcast, where we teach them to want it. This week's it is savagery versus civility. I guess we should really start by defining some of the things that I've just talked about. So first, let us look at training. What is training? Training is essentially a means of building a functional, practical, and useful skill. Obviously, we're looking at this through the lens of dog training and how it pertains to us. So training is then creating a skill or refining an already existing skill so that it is functional. We can call it up when we want to and when we need it. It is practical for the purposes at hand, and it's also useful for our dog and for us. So the next thing is, what is a stressor? Looking at it through for the purposes of this particular podcast, we're going to define a stressor as a negative event which can be perceived as something threatening to us or our dogs. This threat perception creates a desire for escape. So that leads us on to the next variable, then what is escape? Escape is simply an attempted execution of a skill with a probability of success. So that probability does not need to be high. It just needs to have happened in the past or the desire for that success is strong enough that a dog feels like this means of escape is on the cards. So what what could possibly be defined as a successful or rather an a skill that's deployable for escape. That can be something like sniffing, licking, scratching, barking, fighting, pulling. Those are kind of the innate things that our dogs do. Pulling is a bit of a, a bit of a spectrum that can be taught as well. But the ones that are more or less taught in through the filter of what we're going to be talking today is sit, go to bed, heel, and middle. So those are skills that we teach our dogs so that they can have some form of escape in a functional, practical, and useful purpose. Now let us look at what resilience is. Let's define that. Looking through today's lens, we're really going to be looking at resilience as recovery from a stressor. So obviously when a stressor occurs, we don't want our dogs to simply bark consistently, incessantly, all the time. We don't want our dogs to run away until they fall over from exhaustion. What resilience really is, is the amount of time it takes for our dog to recover from something that they have perceived as a threat so that they can establish a means by which our dogs understand that they have achieved some sort of balance. The threat that they perceived before has now been evaded. now talk about from an owner perspective about the importance of just basic training so there are three types of training that i tend to introduce to my clients and that tends to be static dynamic and liberty so let's just have a look at those and unpack some of that stuff because that's just a lot of terms isn't it so static basically are about your control positions so that's your sits downs stands 
includes heels and middles as well. It can also be your go-to-beds, your places, your crates, things like that. So essentially your static skill is a skill whereby we put our dogs into a very specific position towards some sort of arbitrary end goal. Yeah, does that make sense? So uh, again, just to, to rephrase that, a, a static skill is something like a sit. And a sit would be defined as four paws on the floor as well as the bum. Whereas a stand is simply four paws on the floor. A down is four paws on the floor and the chest as well. So there's a number of points of contact with the floor. Now, I, I don't want to go into it too deep because this is an, an owner's perspective, but a static position or a static skill is simply a means by uh, or a constraint by which our dogs are able to perform a specific skill for a predetermined length of time so that would be like your sit stays your stand stays things like that whereas when we look at the dynamic skills those are essentially control positions in motion so Whilst we don't tend to have our dogs sit and move at the same time, what we do tend to have is our heels, our middles, our fronts, and so on and so forth. So these are positions whereby our dog is able to perform a specific skill in transit. And the most obvious one is the heel. Walk next to me, keep your shoulder in line with my left leg, and then continue to move with me. If I stop, you sit. When I go, you stand and move with me. If I turn, you turn. So dynamic is a way of being able to apply constraint to our dogs whilst also putting them into a position to go from A to B. So when we're thinking of something like escape, that means that if our dog is, for example, scared of crossing the road because there's so much traffic going on, they can seek solace in this, their ability, their skill level, of heel. So rather than pulling you across to the medium strip and then going ballistic on the medium strip, what our dog is able to do is heel next to you based upon the amount of success that they've had and they can then glue themselves to your left leg seeking their positive escape through that constraint. Now liberty is essentially our dogs being able to make independent decisions and also assert independent emotional control. Yeah, so liberty basically is about our dogs being able to go off and have some fun and do their own things. So on a walk, when they're on lead with you, you could, for example, uh, walk from one telegraph pole to the next. They're healing, so we have a dynamic skill, a dynamic set of constraints. You must now walk next to me because that's what has been commanded and you have to walk from telegraph pole A to telegraph pole B. Once we get there, you sit. When that is done, we release our dog to liberty. And the only rule there then is that they are not allowed to extend the range of the lead. So that then gives us a means of moving our dogs around in a public situation because maybe they need that level of constraint. It also allows us to navigate more prickly situations, be that the vets, the groomers, um, getting them from your car to the daycare lobby. That could be all sorts of manner of things. There could be something going on around you, um, be that fireworks, be that a bus, be that construction work, demolition work, something noisy, something smelly. It could be going past that dog that can't help but rush the fence and there's no means of being able to avoid it. You've got to go through it. So you can put your dog into a dynamic 
skill so that they can seek their escape through that. So I kind of hope that makes a little bit of sense. Um, whereas your static would be if you're at the vet lobby, for example, you're in reception, there's a bunch of dogs coming in and out. And obviously they're all scared, they're all under stress, they're all in duress. And some of these dogs are friendly, some of these dogs are not friendly. Everybody wants to come up and say hi and all these sorts of things. But your dog who may be in pain, may be scared, whatever that is, you can still lock them into a sit, into a down, into a stand, and they can seek their escape through the execution of that skill. Right, so it is up to us then to ensure that our dogs remain successful. And that basically means that if someone wants to come up and say hi, that we have to turn around and say, sorry, but he's really working his bum off. You can't say hi right now. Yeah. And again, during like a vet is a great example because... You can even get your dog to jump up onto the examination table, lie down on the examination table, roll over on the examination table. And these are all things that you can practice at home. And then someone in a white lab coat or, or a green shirt comes up and starts playing with paws, ears, looks in the mouth, holds a tail, um, thermometers and all sorts of things going on. Or maybe your dog is literally, they're not there for their vaccinations or their checkup or to get their weight checked. They're there because they actually have something wrong with them and they need to have some sort of medical treatment. Now, your dog wants nothing more than to get out of that situation, generally speaking. So they come up with some sort of a skill designed to escape that, which has a probability of success, whether that's perceived or actual attempted success. That's irrelevant, but your dog may just not want to have that rectal thermometer right there, right now. Your dog may not want to have their broken leg played with. Your dog may not want to have a microchip inserted between their shoulder blades. All these sorts of things. But if we give our dogs the means to escape, so we're giving them a skill set to perform so that they can endure the stressor that is about to occur. So it's very important for us to practice basic training. We don't need to do a whole bunch of skills. In the sociability program that I run, it's basically, if we if we really pare it down, we do heal, we do a recall, uh, that allows us to get out of a sticky situation really easily and very quickly. We have our sits, our downs, our stands, so that we can teach a bunch of ways of getting out of a sticky situation without the actual means of Let's call it geographic escape. I can't leave the building. I can't leave the vets right now. I need you to get your vaccinations. You can't leave the grooming table right now. You have to get rid of this matted coat, whatever that may be. But by practicing the basics and rehearsing them and training them and then testing and tweaking them as we go on, that allows us to build a really, really strong set of skills by which our dog can seek escape within functional constraints. Yeah. So whilst there's a lot of people that will turn around and say, hey, only do what the dog can do, life simply doesn't work like that sometimes and we can't practice for everything. So sometimes we can only practice what we can practice and then real life happens and our dog will naturally seek escape through a skill which they believe has the highest probability of success. So how do we, how do we establish a probability of success? How do we define where lies your biggest hope to escape? 
Well, simply by paying a specific skill over and over and over again so that our dog is able to endure all sorts of nasties so that they can get at the perceived nice. What's a nasty? A nasty is anything that our dog doesn't like and seeks to avoid, seeks to escape. Whereas a nice is anything that our dog actively seeks or will work towards problem solving to get to that nice, whether that's a cookie, whether that's a pat, a frisbee, a ball, a flirt pole, whether that's a, a bite sleeve, whether that's an odor trace, whatever that is, the dog is working towards an end goal and they have the skills to be able to get to it. Yeah, so that's kind of what we're talking about, about basic training is that we, we have a, some simple skills that our dogs have and then we continue to apply those and we make that nice consequence strategically and systematically harder to achieve. So our dog has to dig deeper to get that payoff. Let's look at things from a little bit of a deeper level. So let's kind of dive into things. Let's look at things from a handler's perspective. Yeah, This is where we start to unpack the difference between savagery and civility. So let's have a look at the savage nature of our dogs. What, what do I mean by savage? Essentially, the savagery comes from the limbic system of our dogs. Right, so, um, the limbic system controls reinforcement and punishment and how it's processed. It deals with homeostasis. I'm thirsty, so I drink. I'm hungry, so I eat. It can also, or it does, also control uh, subconscious or unconscious things, such as uh, breathing rate, a heart rate. Yeah, It also controls things like urination, uh, defense, so our, our fight, flight, freeze and appease reactions. Our nervous system is controlled by it. Our digestive system is controlled by it. So um, let's have a look at how some of those things can kind of go wrong because it, it's important to understand that. Let's, a simple one under homeostasis would be thirst and hunger. How many times do you get up after, while you're watching a movie, you go, oh man, I'm really hungry. I wanna, I wanna eat something. Have you ever tried drinking? Because hunger and thirst can be quite confusing to us we go oh i'm hungry i want to eat something so i go to the fridge and i get out the chocolate bar then i go get the donuts i get the cookies i get the crackers and that sort of stuff when really what i want is something to drink yeah so but within that limbic system the things that we find innately nice are not necessarily water but those tim tams those chocolate bickies those sorts of things to us are inherently nice so we want more of them <clears throat> now Within the savage nature are things like our, our impulsivity. Yeah, so um, there's a plate of donuts in front of me. I've got to have it right now. Or our re reactivity. Something negative has happened, so I'm just going to yell and scream my way out of the problem. Yeah. Now, from our dog's perspective, impulsivity is fairly simple. I say sit, my dog sits, then gets up straight away. Well, we have to dig a little deeper and we have to train that to be a little bit better so that our dog can sit and stay. 
Yeah, reactivity is uh, I'm walking my dog and they just they're zigzagging left and right. They're barking at anything that goes past and woe betide the cyclist that goes on the shared path beside me. They're going to get chased. So the savage nature is the it, it is the the innate predatory nature of our dogs. Yeah, they want they see something moving fast. They've got to chase it. They see something worth eating. They've got to eat it. And it doesn't necessarily match up with what we would perceive as something nice. Dogs will eat another dog's feces for whatever reason. There's a bunch of reasons for it to us that is just nasty. To our dogs, however, it is nice. Not all the time, but in most times when they eat it, it is nice. It's a, they're being impulsive, they're being reactive, and they're, they're seeking some sort of homeostasis. Right. So in order to overcome that savage nature, what we really want to do is teach our dogs to be more civilized, right? that, that civil nature. And that really comes from the frontal cortex. Right? So that's the problem solving center of the brain, social interactions, impulse control, motor functions, uh, memory, things like that. So essentially, if we kind of really dumb it down, the savage nature, that's the predatory instincts and the reactivity of our dogs whereas the civility is the problem solving the intellectual the cognitive sort of things you know the the, the iq related facet of our dogs and most people really want to um, use or enjoy the civil nature of the dog and have the savage nature under control but as handlers what we tend to do is use the savage nature as a point of reinforcement yeah, so we, the the nice consequences that we apply to our dogs tend to be savage in nature yes now you can go and herd the dogs at the dog park yes now you can go and smell the urine of that female on heat out on the field yes now you can go and mark that telegraph pole whereas those are not necessarily things that we would do running around the house yeah now what are we trying to do then in the, the terms of savagery and civility as far as training stresses and resilience? What we're trying to do is we're teaching a dog to perform a skill in contrast to predatory, defensive and social temptations. Yeah, so a, a predatory temptation may be something like toys, kids, food, urine, things like that. Yeah, so I get my dog to sit and then I will throw a toy around or we'll throw some food around or I'll be sitting at the front of a school and it's time to go home yeah so that the kids are running around and my dog now has to sit and they can't break that sit that's what we're working towards so there's a predatory aspect to that fast moving erratic moving lots of high-pitched noises things like that all elicits within that savage nature elicits a predatory response and our dogs are called to have self-control emotional regulation over that savage response, making them more civilized. So we also have defensive temptations, things like sudden loud noises, whether that's a pot landing on the ground, whether that's the sound of someone kicking a box, whether that's um, flashbangs, thunder, anything like that, cars, horns, any sudden loud noises or any other noise that might trigger our dogs. I've had a dog a couple of years ago and it was the sound of the neighbor's hot water heating system the clicking sound that it made when it switched on created an intense defensive response 
and the escape that this dog required was was so intense so what we're looking at doing is providing other avenues of escape for our dogs and when we are then introducing these temptations we are providing applications so that there is this trigger continue to apply that skill and thereby you will create your escape because the trigger ultimately is transient in nature it disappears right so it's gone but you are still sitting you are still healing you are still coming when called you're still on your bed whatever that may be we also have social temptations now what do i mean by social temptations that's dog-to-dog interaction dog-to-person interaction maybe my dog really does want to say hi but you can't because i've told you to heal and i've told you to heal because of whatever reason right now that person is potentially a threat that other dog doesn't want to say hi you know whatever that situation is right now there's just there's no option for a social interaction so stick with the constraint that has been put upon you now As we're teaching our dog to perform skills, in contrast to those temptations, we've got to be aware that there are four stages to training. So let's just dive into that. Basically, the the first stage would be teaching. And it is really best to teach in a lab environment. Not many of us can do that. So we get the next best thing, and that tends to be your home, which is going to be some sort of a Skinner box in itself, right? You can go into the laundry, you can go into a bedroom, you can go into your lounge room, wherever it is, where your dog is not tempted by other things. You are the most interesting aspect and whatever it is that you're teaching, you're teaching the foundations. And once we've taught the actual skill itself to some degree of capacity, from there we go into the training aspect where we start to introduce some distractions. We're starting to introduce the command itself, right? So the verbal component of sit, now you must park your bum on the floor and keep all four on the ground. Once our dogs are good at the training phase, then we can move into the testing phase. And now we're starting to expand into the real world. We're actually deploying those skills in real world situations. That means that we are now reducing our own control over the environment, which is what we had in Teach and Train. But now the environment is starting to become more unpredictable for us which calls for us to be more confident, more assertive, and to be able to not control our dogs, but to lead our dogs, right? So that we can be, we can put our dogs into the best place to be successful. And if it's too much, then we are able to get ourselves out of there. So a testing environment is always approximating real world situations. And once we've got our dog into a sense of of fluency in that skill in a bunch of different real world applications now like training never ever stops it's one of the biggest myths is hey when is my dog good enough never your dog will never be good enough we can never be perfect so stop trying what we do instead is we are continually tweaking for example how many times have you gone to the uh, vets to go and train your dog not many people go and do that So that there means that I have to tweak the skill level that I have practiced. And I may have practiced at the front of the vets. I may have practiced at home on the table and touching paws and hair dryers and prodding them with pens and things like that. But I've never actually put my dog up on the vet's table and they haven't been injected during a a tweaking session. 
Right? So what I need to be able to do is I need to understand that there will always be novelty. Recently in a training session, we had a, a little um, a little willy wagtail, which is a very small bird, about the size of a man's fist maybe. And this thing, man, it was on. You can't practice for those sorts of exact occurrences. We had heel and we used that and we had this willy wagtail flying at us. It was swooping the dog. It was swooping me. It was swooping the owners. And it followed us for all at least 20 meters. And the people that were walking behind us thought it was the funniest thing. It is kind of funny in retrospect, but for the dog, it's not. For the dog, that's a, there's a threat perception there and the dog is seeking to escape. And he did his best to heal along with us. And he did good. I went back out there and I tried to reproduce that particular situation, but that willy wagtail was gone. So I can't go back to it and I can't revisit that. And I'm never going to get a willy wagtail trained to do that. So we tweak. We constantly find ways of raising and reducing criteria for something novel and we adjust ourselves and our expectations of what our dogs can do. Yeah, so that's kind of that, that covers things from a handler's perspective, how we are trying to build skills in a way that our dogs are able to cope with stresses and become more resilient through that. Let's look at things from a trainer perspective. When we are training, we are providing access to dopamine. Dopamine is a neurochemical which drives the pursuit of an outcome. So if we look at it in a human perspective, Christmas and kids are a great example. What happens? Kids come running into the living room, they see a whole bunch of wrapped presents underneath the tree. What do they do when they get to the first? They figure out which one's theirs, right? And then they unwrap the present with gusto. Then they see what's inside of it. Then they're done. Next, then they go for the next present and they unwrap it with gusto. They get it, right, put it aside. What's the next one? It's the act of unwrapping the present. That is what is creating a huge amount of access to dopamine in their brain. Dopamine then is a chemical that allows us to pursue something that we can control or hope for. And once we've got it, once we've solved that problem, right, then dopamine shuts off. It's, no, it, it's fulfilled its purpose. We move on. Cortisol, which has a bit of a bad name, is kind of the opposite of dopamine but not necessarily in its function. Dopamine drives us into solving a problem by moving into it. Cortisol looks at solving a problem by moving away from it. Dopamine makes us feel good. Cortisol makes us feel bad. So cortisol has a similar function. It cuts through the mustard of whatever it is that we're doing, whether we're feeling good or indifferent. Cortisol makes us feel bad. That makes us pay attention. And then we seek to solve the problem by escaping. So uh, a a bird lying on the ground, vulnerable, we walk up to it, it flies away. Our presence is a negative threat. 
either that bird perceives it, they fly away, they have now successfully escaped. Cortisol shuts off, they continue on their merry way. So most people have come across this particular situation and it doesn't mean that the bird is flying away forever. What it does mean is that the bird seeks escape, i.e. they attain more safety. And from there, they have that homeostatic environment that we talked about in the handlers, yeah? So when we are training, what we are essentially doing is we are raising the threshold at which our dogs are susceptible to cortisol. So if we think of it, like if I try and explain that in a different way, if I say sit to my dog, they sit and I pull a party popper out of my pocket and I pop that, that loud explosion is probably going to make my dog break the sit. But if I start with something else, claps, taps, dropping something on the floor, doing other things and work my way successively and systematically up towards a party popper, up towards firing a blank, up towards firing a rifle or a shotgun, for example, up towards simulating thunder, then what I'm able to do is I'm able to raise the point at which my dog freaks out, is a slave to their brain chemistry and tries to run away. They're then able to stay more disciplined and sit for longer. Yeah, so they're able to withstand more cortisol. So even though they still feel bad, they're able to withstand that negative feeling in, in the pursuit of the outcome. Yeah, so they're able to... The dopamine overrides the cortisol for a really dumbed-down sort of expression. Yeah, so these things are happening within the brain. I really want to get to this end result, but gee, it's really hard. Yes. So we've all come across situations like that. Now, also what we have to keep in mind is while we're training, through repetitions, what we are enabling is the myelinization of neural circuits. So when we teach our dog to sit, there is a skill set that is a circuit within our dog's brain. Think of it as just a a really horrible, non-trodden path through the bush. Right? So you, you go out to the forest somewhere, you go out to a national park, and there's just nothing but scrub. That is the very first session, the very first repetition of teaching your dog any skill. It's, there's this massive amount of undergrowth, there are weeds everywhere, there's things going on, but not what you want. We have to show them first. So we have to pave away we have to show them the path that i want you to take and then suddenly we have a lightly worn path that lightly worn path through repetitions becomes a goat track yeah like an animal pad that goes through the bush we, we, we've seen those before some sort of a, a lightly worn path next thing you know it becomes compacted dirt next thing you know it becomes a well-worn path through the bush that you can ride your bike down Next thing you know, someone comes along and puts concrete down there. Next thing you know, they put a single lane. Then it turns into a freeway. Then it turns into train tracks. So what's happening over time is as we repeatedly apply that skill, the myelin makes that skill more readily available and faster to execute. So 
For those of us that drive, and for those of us that drive competitively, if you're sitting at a set of traffic lights, right? so you're in the straight ahead lane, you're right up against a left turn only lane. The traffic lights are sitting there. Next thing you know, the left traffic lights, theirs turn green and yours stays red, but your foot automatically moves off the brake pedal to get onto the accelerator. That's the myelinization you're looking only for green lights. We haven't gotten that skill level down to, I'm looking at this one specific green light. Does that make sense? I hope so. Another way of looking at that is when I say to my dog, sit, and they sit, that's cool. But if I say in a different context, the word city, I don't want my dog to sit. My dog has to be able to differentiate between those two stimuli. And myelinization helps that. It helps to be able to differentiate between those things. Like this is what I'm looking for and then this is how fast I execute things. How readily I'm able to call up gross motor and fine motor function to some sort of an afferent stimulus. Yeah? Some sort of a signal that is coming in through the env from the environment to my dog. They sense it, whether that's by sight, by smell, by sound, by touch, whatever that is. And they then immediately call up this motor function like sit. Now, this can be maladapted in some ways. Think about a service dog situation. I walk up to a pedestrian crossing at a busy set, busy set of lights and I press the pedestrian button. Or my dog presses the pedestrian button. Click. No problems. My dog returns and sits next to me. Next thing you know, as the pedestrian lights turn green, what happens? There's a sound. There's a clacking. There's a thumping. But my dog's not supposed to move until I tell them to move, for example. So, But if I am not aware and I don't push deep enough into the skill set, my dog will look at that as a skill as now I can go. Right? So for some dogs, that's cool. For some dogs, that's not. Outside of the world of assistance dogs with a pet dog, I would not want the sound of the pedestrian crossing. I don't want that signal to be the cue to move across because accidents can still happen. Cyclists come past, brakes break, people don't pay attention, etc., etc. So it's still my command of heel that gets my dog out of that sit and moving along with me. So we go from a static to a dynamic skill, yeah? And it's kind of important to understand that, that what we are doing and how we are then doing it. So another way to think of myelin is, uh, if you think of a, a like a an, an really old straw, like an old paper straw, it's all soft, it, uh, it's all brittle, it's kind of falling apart. I'm not going to be able to suck up a whole heap of water through that. Yeah. Another alternative is uh, back in the day, my party trick was I could hold 80 straws from those plastic ones from Macca's. I could hold them in my mouth and I could st still suck the Coke up through the, like, the 80 straws. That's a huge amount of suck for very little Coke. Right? So if I just have a single straw, I don't have to suck as much in order to get far more coke up that straw and enjoy a nice drink. Yeah. So we're going from a lot of input, a lot of effort for relatively slow response, and after a lot of repetitions that are worthwhile to our dogs, 
what happens is that neural pathway, that circuit, becomes more and more reinforced and that single pathway through our brain becomes more and more modernized and that then makes faster, much more efficient responses from our dogs. Yeah, And they're all doing it in a sense of I get access to something. Yeah, so an example of that then really is is like the, the sit. When I say sit to start with, the dogs are slow, they're not very fast into it, they don't sit very nice, they slump, they slouch, they may be cautious about doing things when they're in it, they'll break it very easily, they might just pitter patter around when they're nervous, but later on down the track, by the latest when I'm in that test phase, then they're sitting and they're slamming their butts into the ground. They're able to much faster get into the sit position because they have a strong reinforcement history of getting to that nice consequence. They're able to withstand far more cortisol in their body and the dopamine is able to override that. They're far more desirous and hopeful of an outcome that they know they can predict. They're starting to be able to control their environment. You say sit, I'll damn well sit because I'm going to get something at the end of it. Yeah. So that that's kind of things from a trainer's perspective is, as to how we're affecting our dogs, how we use training to establish a means of dealing with stresses that would otherwise cause an escape response. Yeah, so our dogs are able to deal with things. What we are also able to do through resilience is, for example, there's a sudden loud noise. Our dog innately just slams themselves down into a sit. <gasps> the big suck in a breath, like, holy dooly, what was that? But it's a way for them to cope with their environment and assert some sort of a control mechanism rather than go and fight it, bark at it, run away from it. Rather than being a house of cards, now it's a house built on concrete with strong foundations, and now I can move into that, and I can use that in practical and functional means. It's now a useful skill for me to use in life. Yeah. And the resilient part of that really is that our dogs are able to control their response to cortisol. I might feel creeped out at the bar because the sleazy guy keeps looking over at me, he's plying me with drinks and that sort of stuff. I really want to get up and go, but instead I'll just tell him to get stuffed. I don't want your drinks. I don't want to hang out with you. I'm here doing this. Okay, no worries. Thanks for that. I've got a control mechanism with which I can act upon my environment. I can act within myself to not evade, to not escape outside of something that is useless, impractical, and totally not functional. So let's have a look at some examples from the real world about training and its results, in particular to the functional, the practical, and the useful skills. So when I, um, when I was a little bit earlier in my training, when I first really opened Barefoot Paws, I took in, as a board and train, a five-month-old firecracker of a dog. I'm glad he's not mine. He he was a, a really cool dog, very well driven, um, probably not pet material, more in lines of working material. He's, he's very, very hardcore. Now, I had him for three weeks, and I really just, I only taught him a few things, because 
I had him for three weeks and he's very young. But those things, even while I had him, that skill set literally kept him out of the vets. One of those things obviously being heel. You've got to have a dog that walks next to you when things go sideways. Otherwise, you're a risk to yourself. Your dog is a risk to yourself. You're a risk to, the, to the, your surroundings. And your dog is a risk to, the, to your surroundings. So it's important that we are able to have some means of moving through a public setting. Now, I went walking uh, with, with my own dog, Codes, and with Bodie at the time. Codes was off lead. Bodie was on a long line. And literally from around the corner, from behind us, uh, there was a, a, a gentleman walking his two um, very overly aroused, very under-trained, uh, very aggressive dogs. And they came running at us from well over 200 meters. And they beelined it straight towards Bodie. And I didn't realize that they were there until it was too late. Codes was a little bit further ahead. She came running back to us. Bodie realized what was going on. As a puppy, he's interested in all sorts of things, just not that thing. So it wasn't until like the last part of, of those dogs rushing at us, I turned around, there's this massive Labrador come bounding towards us. Now, he, that dog's plan was to pin Bodie down to the ground and break something. Uh, it was only that Bodie is uh, part Border Collie, a extremely fast, extremely agile, very impulsive, very reactive, very, very quick in his savage nature. But we had been smashing heel. So what did he defer to? In a moment of extreme negative situations, our dogs will defer to whatever it is that they feel has a probability of success. And we had been working heel so much that he deferred to it rather than trying to fight his way out of the problem, rather than trying to run away, rather than trying to do all sorts of other things that are savage in nature, he deferred to something far more civil. He deferred to an artificial skill which we had started on. He planted himself against my left leg. That made the rushing dog miss. They just about fell over and gave me enough time to be able to yell out a no, turn around, get the, the situation under control, get old mate to take control of his two, two dogs, and I could get out of there. That literally, that heel saved that dog's life at that moment in time. Guaranteed. If this other dog would have grabbed a hold of that five-month-old puppy, it would have been on. Like, that would have definitely been a trip to the vets. Uh, so it's important that if we teach our dogs artificial skills unconsciously they will deploy those skills it's not a decision it's a reaction holy dooly this worked for me in the past let's see if it works now it worked and i don't have to give that dog a pat or a treat i don't have time for that i've got to get the other dog under control i have to control my two dogs and somehow come out of this unscathed and we did and it was wonderful because heal is an awesome skill to have one of the reasons it's so good is because you will never ever become accustomed to a dog leaning against your left leg. It doesn't happen so often that you will become used to it. So it will always catch your attention. I've had this countless number of times uh, with codes 
the, uh, recent, uh, not so recently, there was a um, there's a golden retriever that, that lives not too far away from where I am, and he's a nasty piece of work, and the owners don't have control. But for some reason, for whatever reason, they like to have him out the front where they're doing their gardening, and no, they don't have a front fence. So I come back from a walk. I've got codes at heel. This golden comes straight out, totally predictable. I've got codes at heel. So I walk her in a circle back towards the owner so that she can get a hold of her dog. And she managed to, to get a hold of him. But it's, some, it's a gnarly situation. And Codes wants nothing more than to put that other dog in their place because she's socially, she's quite up there. She holds herself in quite high regard. But she can't because I don't know what that other dog's going to do and I'm not going to risk a fight. So having these skills allows us to put ourselves into social situations and be able to control potential outcomes. Yeah. Middle is also a great example. Middle is something that works really well with uh, Kefi when he is feeling like he's a little bit over the top or something else is trying to, or um, creating some sort of an escape reaction from him, he'll quite often come running up to me and get into the middle position with himself between my legs. And he'll look up and go, oh, this is a bit much, help me out. Totally fine. Again, the middle position is something that is so unnatural to have another living being between your legs while he's standing up. It's not normal, so you don't habituate to it readily. It always catches your attention. And you look down and go, okay, my dog's there. Why are they there? And then you start scanning the environment, figuring out why is it that my dog's doing this? It is far easier for us to determine that our dogs are seeking some sort of an escape when they're performing these skills because when our dog is licking the air in front of them, it's easy for us to miss it. When our dogs are walking with us and they suddenly sniff the road for no apparent reason but we keep walking we're then dragging our dogs towards the trigger and next thing you know they have no hope of escape they have no hope of control so now i'm pushing my dogs into fighting their way out of a situation yeah so that kind of comes into play when i'm taking a dog for a walk for example the average owner takes a dog for a walk uh, their dog suddenly starts sniffing the ground. They stop, they lay down, they're licking the air. These things are just, they're dog things. Dogs do what they do and I don't understand it, so I don't appreciate it. I can't control the environment. My dog is innately using their savage nature to communicate and try to assert some sort of control over the outcome. But then they can't because I keep dragging them to the same reactive, the same aggressive, the same threatening dog and then they're forced to say hi neither one of them wants to say hi and then i'm just staring at my dogs for long enough until one dog does bark snap and snarl and then i'm acting surprised because i don't have the skill set to be able to control the situation so i find myself like a broken record going back over the same song all the time so it's important for us to have these artificial skills like sits stays Go onto your bed so that I can open the door and deal with the courier. These sorts of things. Go to your bed while there's a storm. Get into your crate while I have a barbecue. All these sorts of things. All these sorts of artificial forms of constraint that allow our dogs to overcome the cortisol that is being produced in them 
be able to deal with the negativity that's around them and become far more resilient and actually endure real life rather than try and pry our, our dogs out of situations with cookies and avoid the whole brain chemistry, the whole physiology about them. Yeah. So to wrap up, one of the things that I just really want to hammer home is that training starts without stresses. We're just teaching our dogs what to do. Then we start to include stresses from small through to big, and that creates resilience. We're then creating a form of escape into skills that, that increases hope for escape through that skill more and more often. Yeah, So that, that skill becomes more and more likely before I even have a chance to say, Codes, Kefi, I need you to heal right now. They find themselves automatically doing it. Yeah, it becomes a self-reassuring, a self-controlling, and environmentally controlling skill set. And don't forget to teach them to want it, and when you need it, there's no doubt about it. So please do like, rate, subscribe, and share this on an app of your choice. And don't forget to especially use your voice now. If you want a question answered, if you want to give some feedback, I would love to hear from it. You can contact me at barefootpaws at mail.com. That's barefootpaws, all one word, at mail, M-A-I-L dot com. You can find me on the web, you can find me on Facebook, and you can find me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you.